And so let us turn in God's Word to Revelation chapter 7. Uh, Revelation 7, as we continue uh, this sermon series through the book of Revelation. Of course, if you have the Revelation notebook, uh, you can find that here on page 26. Again, hopefully those will be helpful uh, to you. But uh, Revelation chapter 7, and uh, as you're turning there, it would be good for us to reflect for just a moment on how much we value safety and security. Think of how much time and energy we give to staying safe, to having some level of security. We, we look to the police to keep us safe. We install security systems in our homes to keep us safe. And for many, we'll even buy weapons to try and keep us safe. But no matter how much we do to protect ourselves, we know that our safety is not guaranteed. That our security, however good it may be, will not be perfect. And so we feel, still face hardships in life. We still can be hurt in our lives. And this is especially true for Christians as we live in a world that opposes God and that will persecute Christ's church. So the question we wrestle over this morning is, do we, as believers in Christ, have safety and security in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our suffering? And the answer this morning we find from God's Word is absolutely. And our protection, listen, it's far superior to anything this world has to offer. So let's read more than about God's protection here over us in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, where the Apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, let us once again go before our Lord, or come before our Lord's throne here in prayer before we continue. Oh, Father, what glorious words you have recorded for us in this chapter of your holy word. May you then be with us and help us in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our suffering, to be fed and nourished in our souls as your word is preached. May these words of encouragement then, Father, renew our minds. May they revive our hearts. And may they lead us to rejoice as we seek to live in light of these truths. So, Lord, we pray that these words will have great power as they come out among us, even as we live this life of struggling and suffering in this world, even as we've been reminded of earlier today. So, Father, we pray for these things that in the name of our Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful chapter of Scripture because it reveals to us that God protects His people so that we will persevere. Isn't that beautiful? What an encouragement that God protects his people so that we will persevere. And in this chapter, then, we see this through two perspectives of God's people as they face suffering. So the, 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 the first perspective that comes through this revelation is the protection of those who are sealed in verses 1 to 8. But then the, the second perspective that is revealed is the perseverance of those who are saved in verses 9 to 17. So you have the pr protection of those who are sealed in verses 1 to 8, followed by the perseverance of those who are saved 
verses 9 to 17. Let's begin then by considering this first perspective in these opening verses of this chapter. Of course, God here in the book of Revelation is giving this revelation of symbolic visions to the Apostle John as an encouragement to Christians who themselves are struggling with trials, with temptations, with tribulation. Which is why, beginning in chapter 4, God calls John up to heaven to record what he sees. As he gives his people a heavenly perspective to understand what is going on behind the scenes in this world, so to speak. So John sees God the Father sitting on his heavenly throne and ruling over all of human history. And he's holding a scroll which is written on it, his plan of redemption, which includes both God's salvation of his people and his judgment of the wicked. Yet this scroll is sealed. It's sealed with seven seals. And only Christ is the one who is worthy to break these seals and carry out God's plan of redemption. So he comes and takes this scroll and he opens these seals one at a time. So in chapter 6, we saw how the first four seals release the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they bring forth worldly deception and conquest, war and bloodshed, famine and poverty, and disease and death. And then when the fifth seals opened, John sees the faithful martyrs who have suffered and died for their faith as they pray to God for vengeance. And then they are reassured that indeed God's justice will come, which then unfolds in the sixth seal, when God's wrath is poured out at the end of this age against unbelieving sinners and this corrupt creation. And this is why then chapter 6 ends in verse 17 with this question. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand in the great day of the wrath of God? Well, this chapter is what answers the question by revealing who is able to stand on Judgment Day. So in this chapter, it's like a pause button is pressed between Christ opening the sixth seal and is opening the seventh seal. And this pause button is pressed to remind God's people of what he has done for them in the midst of these seals of God's judgment so that they will stand before God. And so chapter 7 begins where John writes after these things, which means that this vision is continuing after the, 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 what he has seen previously in these visions. Not that he is seeing what comes after the sixth seal in history. After all, what was the sixth seal? But the portrayal of the coming of Christ's judgment at the end of the age. So here we rewind to before these judgments begin in this vision. And what does John see next? That there are four angels standing on four corners of the earth, holding the four winds. 
of the earth. Now, again, here the symbolism is important. The number four is important. Uh, the, the, the four corners of the earth obviously doesn't mean the earth literally has four corners, right? We all know the earth is a sphere. But four here represents the worldwide scope of what will be poured out through these four winds, similarly to how we may speak of the four points of a compass, north, south, east, and west. The point is they will take place everywhere. But there are these four angels who are restraining or keeping these four winds. And the four winds we have actually already seen in the last chapter as the four horses of the apocalypse as they will blow over the earth or the sea or any tree. So why in the next verse, these are winds of judgment that we see are granted to harm the earth and the sea and the trees. But these four angels are temporarily holding back these winds. Why? Well, another angel rises up from the east he has the seal of the living God. Now, this is likely the royal signet ring that would have been on God's right hand. Remember, it stamped the seals of judgment to come on the scroll. And now it stamps his seal of ownership on the foreheads of his people. This is similar to how ranchers will brand their animals to show their ownership over them. Or how in the Roman world, slave owners would have branded or tattooed their slaves to show their ownership over them. Or what we find then in this case is how God's people receive this mark on them to show his ownership over them. Of course, this isn't a visible or a physical mark. But it is a spiritual recognition of who they are. And of his ownership over them. So this angel speaks to the other angels that these four winds of the earth must not be released to harm this world until these servants of God are sealed as his own so they will be protected during this judgment. And again, we see this coming forth from the Old Testament. So we can look back to the prophet Ezekiel and his ministry as he writes about the coming destruction of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 9. Listen to what Ezekiel writes in verses 3 to 4 there. Ezekiel says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done with it. There is this mark given to God's faithful people to protect them over God's judgment to come. And here in Revelation, history is repeating itself because God's people will be protected from his judgment. You see, they may face the wrath of wicked men as God's seals of judgment are opened, but they will not face the wrath of God because his seal of protection is placed on them. 
Now, they are, not, they, they are not protected from suffering in this world, notice, but they are protected through suffering in this world until they will one day be free from all suffering in this world to come. It's why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see? Yes, our body may be killed, but our soul, our soul will never change in its standing before God because we have the seal of God upon us. So when we bear God's seal on our foreheads, our bodies they may kill, but nothing can destroy our souls. And we have then no fear of death or hell because we are sealed unto eternal life in Christ. God's seal then protects us from his wrath because he preserves our faith through the trials and the temptations and the tribulation that we suffer in this world. The seal then reveals to God's people his promise from Philippians 1.6. Listen, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because God's people are sealed. But then John hears the number that we're sealed, right? 144,000. Now, there is a lot of controversy over identifying who these 144,000 are. But what we've seen over and over again is that the numbers of Revelation have meaning. So this is not merely a mathematical calculation. It's not simply that 144 are counted, John then reporting that there was more than 143,000 and less than 145,000, right? It's not the focus. So let's look more closely then at this number and its meaning. Of course, the number we here see comes from the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. This was then the patriarch Jacob. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. But what's interesting here is that the tribes that are listed are different from the 12 tribes as they are listed throughout the Old Testament. Now, this is not a mistake from the Apostle John. After all, he was a Jew that would have known well Israel's history and who the 12 tribes were. But the number 12 here in Revelation, and really in, in, in Scripture as a whole, represents fullness or completeness, which is why there are 12 tribes. There are then 12 apostles. There are then uh, 12, or excuse me, 24 angelic elders. If you go forward to the end of Revelation, the measurement of the New Jerusalem is 12,000 furlongs or stadia squared. Its walls measure 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. And the tree of life at the end of Revelation bears 12 fruits. And a thousand represents a large number of fullness and completeness as well, which is often used then in the Old Testament to organize Israel's armies into thousands. 
So when you multiply and add these numbers together, it means the, the completeness and the vastness of God's people. Because this complete and vast number will be protected during this age who have been enlisted into his army as they will go on then in the coming chapters. But the question remains, who are the 144,000? Well, many believe that this number represents Jewish Christians. After all, they are called Israel. They are identified through 12 tribes. But I am convinced that this number represents the total number of spiritual Israel, Christ's church. Why do I say this? Well, John has already written of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And now this true Israel of God is seen as those who have been sealed. Why then does he use this language of Israel to describe his church? Well, he again is using Old Testament typology. He's drawing on the relationship in the Old Testament between Israel and Egypt. And he'll continue to develop this comparison moving forward. You see, as Old Testament Israel was protected from God's judgment of Egypt through the plagues, so his true spiritual Israel will be protected from God's judgment against the world. And this is confirmed in chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, when the fifth trumpet of judgment is sounded, do you know what that judgment is? Locusts. Locusts, which also were the eighth plague against Egypt. And so we read in Revelation 9, verse 4, that they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So what does this number mean? that God has chosen his own elect people who will receive his seal to be protected from his judgment in wrath as they serve him in this world. And not one of them will be lost. All 144,000 will be saved. And this includes all of the faithful martyrs who cried out to God in the fifth seal of the last chapter. Because they're told in verse 11 that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So John hears that their number will be complete. And since these martyrs represent all Christians in this age, we learn that the sealing ensures the full number of God's servants will be protected through their suffering in this world from losing their spiritual lives with God. They have no fear of losing their relationship with God. No fear of losing their coming eternal life with God. They are protected because they are sealed. What an encouragement then this is to our souls. Because when we believe in Christ, God sets his seal on us so that our faith remains secure in our suffering. 
So however hard our lives may become, whatever difficulties we may face, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. So our our, our, our faith may go up and down as a roller coaster, but listen, we'll never fall off the ride. We will continue until the end because nothing separates us from the love of Christ and God protects his people. That's what we find in this 144,000, that God protects his people. But remember, God protects his people so that we will persevere. That's why we then come to the second perspective here in this chapter. We, we begin with this first perspective of God's people in the 144,000, those who are sealed. Now we come to the second perspective of those who are saved in a great multitude, which no one can number. So the second perspective in verses 9 to 17 is the perseverance of those who are saved. So now we are given another perspective on God's people. See, before... They were a particular number of his chosen people on earth. But now they are a universal, unnumbered multitude of his diverse people in heaven. Both then show us different ways of understanding who the people of God are. They give us complementary perspectives to understand different aspects of God's people. Think of it this way. In chapter 5, John first heard that Jesus was a mighty lamb. And then he saw Jesus as a slain lamb. There was a change in imagery, right? Well, here in chapter 7, John first heard God's people numbered as 144,000. And now he sees them as a great multitude which no one could number. So the 144,000 is the innumerable multitude. See, in the first perspective, God rewinds to, to before his opening of his seals of judgment to show his people their sealing of protection through his judgment. But now, in the second perspective, God fast forwards to the time after his judgments are complete to show his people their reward for persevering in their salvation through the suffering of this world. Do you see the relationship? That's why one biblical scholar makes this helpful comparison. In verses 1 to 8, we're presented with the church militant on earth, sealed and drawn up in battle formation before the coming struggle. While in verses 9 to 17, we're presented with the church after the battle, triumphant in heaven. So John here sees a great multitude which no one can number which fulfills God's covenant promise to our father of the faith, Abraham, that from one man will be born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. How great then is God's grace. So many are saved that John sees them and they cannot be numbered. And this innumerable multitude includes all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. 
You may remember back in chapter 5, John sees 24 elders who represent in heaven those redeemed to God by the blood of the Lamb. They come out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But now in this chapter, John sees God's redeemed people themselves in heaven as they stand before the throne and before the Lamb from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. What a contrast we have then here. We're at the end of chapter 6. The wicked feared God and vainly asked to hide from his face as the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And they wonder who is able to stand. And now John sees those who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Because God's throne of judgment against the fearful wicked is also his throne of reward for his faithful martyrs. So they here then are described in two ways. First, they're clothed with white robes. We have seen these white robes before because they represent the righteousness and purity that we receive from Christ, which washes us clean from the filthiness of our sin. But then they also have palm branches in their hands. And palm branches, of course, were used in the celebration of the Passover. When God protected and freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And then in John chapter 12, we read of Jesus who makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And there, what happens? But a great multitude takes branches of palm trees and goes out to meet him and cries out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Do you see then how? Once more, a great multitude of God's people have palm branches praising their victorious king here. Jesus Christ, as they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are songs or words of a song of triumph. As their king has saved them and they have persevered to the end of the age. So John here witnesses a heavenly celebration of God's salvation through Christ. That while we as sinners deserve the very wrath of God, Christ in his love takes our place by hanging on the cross and dying under the very wrath of God we deserve. So I ask you this morning, will you be able to stand before the throne and before the Lamb on the great day of His wrath to come? Because without Christ, no one will stand but the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out against you in the fullness of the judgment of God for your sin. But what we find in the Lamb is not only the wrath of God for sin, but the love of God for sinners. 
Which is why he was slain on the cross. So that the wrath we deserve is satisfied and paid for by Christ. That we are redeemed by his blood. Oh, listen, if you do not know this redemption, this salvation from God's wrath, come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Receive Christ as your Savior. See in Christ the very one who has triumphed over death and all the powers of evil through the cross so that we too will be forgiven of our sins and live reconciled lives of Christ free from our sin eternally in the heavens with our King. See, this is what we find through Christ's death on the cross, that he has triumphed over Satan and the powers of evil, which is why he is now ruling in heaven and will carry out God's judgment in this world. And so those who are saved sing the song of praise and worship. And the rest of the angels can't help but join in. All the heavenly host responds then to the praise of those who are saved by falling down before the throne and joining with them in worship of God's saved people. Their hymn then begins and ends with the words, Amen, because they add their testimony to the truthfulness of what those who've been saved by God declared. And they then sing this sevenfold blessing to our God forever and ever. Well, at this point, John seems to wonder about what he's seen. What does all this mean? So one of the angelic elders here seems to read his mind and then answer his own question, answer with his own question, so that John will understand this vision. Who is the great multitude that wears white robes and where have they come from? Well, John admits he doesn't know, but he trusts that this angel knows and that he will explain the answer. An explanation then is given that this great multitude clothed in white robes and waving palm branches in their hands while singing God's praise for salvation through Christ the Lamb. Well, they're those who come out of the great tribulation. Now, usually today, when people hear about the Great Tribulation, they think about a future seven-year period after Christ raptures the church when the world will come under God's wrath for their sinfulness. And this is largely the result of their interpretation of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9, which is a prophecy about 70 weeks. Now, I will be looking more closely at this 70 weeks prophecy later as we continue in our study of Revelation. But I think that this view is a misunderstanding of the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9. See, to understand what is meant here by the Great Tribulation, John is drawing on Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. 
And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we read, At that time, Michael, the archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And do you remember how this these visions from God to John in Revelation have close parallels with Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives. We, we saw this in the opening of the seals. But listen to Jesus' words here as he's teaching on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, verses 15 to 22, where Jesus brings together Daniel 12, 1, and the language of the Great Tribulation. We read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to make anything out of his house, and let those uh, who, uh, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Do you see then how the great tribulation began in the life of the apostles and it continues through this present evil age? This is why John wrote at the beginning of this book in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you see, these churches are already in the Great Tribulation. And it continues through this age, even as this tribulation intensifies into a final concentrated satanic affliction upon the church before Christ returns. But what's my point? That we shouldn't think of the Great Tribulation as only a future period of time, but as a time that includes the days we're living in. Remember, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But what we find here is that we will also persevere through this persecution and come out with it with our salvation secure. How is this possible? Again, in Revelation chapter 7, we see it's because our robes are washed and made white with the blood of the Lamb. We persevere because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us. So our perseverance won't come because of our strength. Our perseverance won't come because of our faithfulness. Our perseverance won't come because of our efforts. But our perseverance comes because we are united to Christ by faith. And we live with his strength by his faithfulness, out of his effort through tribulation in this world. 
brothers and sisters, listen to the glories of the future that we look forward to in Christ. There's such a wonderful poetic language at the end of Revelation 7 that will then be expanded on later in Revelation after God's judgment comes at the end of this age. But here we read these precious words that we will live before God's throne, serving Him in worship day and night, and God will dwell among us. Which means that we look forward to eternal life in His presence. I mean, listen to all that we have to look forward to where the day is coming when the pains of this world will be no more. Why? Because Christ the Lamb will be our shepherd. He will lead us to the living fountains of waters where we will be constantly refreshed by His grace. That's why there will be no more tears. Because this present evil age will pass away. But the age to come will continue forever. And this is the future of all those who persevere in our faith. But listen, we will persevere in our faith because of God's protection through our suffering. May this vision then cause our souls to rejoice. Because God protects his people so that we will persevere. God protects his people so that we will persevere. What confidence we have in Christ. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our tribulation, brothers and sisters, when we're in Christ, when we're trusting in Christ by faith, our relationship with God will never change. Our faith will stand firm and we will then stand before Him as He welcomes us into eternity to enjoy His presence. It is because of our sealing in salvation that we are secure in our suffering. Isn't that wonderful? That because of our sealing and salvation, we are secure in our suffering. It is this confidence then that carries through Christians in this world filled with trials and temptations and tribulation. That's why we then have so many Christians through history who have shown this confidence in the midst of persecution and even martyrdom. One example of a, a missionary that I think makes this so clear is John Patton. Some of you may know back in the 19th century, Patton became a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands there in the South Pacific Ocean. 
but the natives there of the land that he sought to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ were cannibals. And they attempted many times to kill him. Living there was hard. He had to bury both his first wife and his child there. And yet through much deprivation and disease, Patton persevered. Which is why he writes in his autobiography, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave his hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. So through Patton's faithfulness and suffering, listen, those on the island of Aniwa came to faith in Christ. There was published an Aniwa New Testament for the people, and missionaries there reached 25 of the 30 islands in the area. Did you hear the confidence in Patton's words when he declared, I was immortal? Till my master's work with me was done. The same is true for all of us in Christ. We too are immortal until our master's work with us is done. And so it's with that confidence that we know he protects us so that we will persevere however many years God gives us in this life. Yes, there is suffering, but there's also God's sealing and salvation. May we then live with this peace from God that He protects His people while we persevere. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a precious encouragement you give us this morning through your word. That we are those who are protected, even in the midst of our suffering, so that we will persevere. That you are at work among us to complete this plan of salvation, as Jesus Christ carries it out in this age. Which, yes, may mean our persecution and even our martyrdom. But as Paul has said, nothing can separate us from your love. May we then live with this peace and confidence. through the trials and temptations and tribulation of life. 
Or may we be a faithful people who persevere by the strength you give us in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We then pray these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.